Chapter thirty one of Mary Marston. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne. Mary Marston by George MacDonald. Chapter thirty one. Sepia. As naturally as if she had been born to that very duty and no other, Mary slid into the office of lady's maid to Mrs. Redmain feeling in it, although for reasons very different, no more degradation than her mistress saw in it. If Hesper was occasionally a little rude to her, Mary was not one to accept a rudeness, that is, to wrap it up in resentment and put it away safe in the pocket of memory. She could not help feeling things of the kind, sometimes with indignation and anger, but she made haste to send them from her, and shut the doors against them. She knew herself a far more blessed creature than Hesper, and felt the obligation, from the master himself, of so enduring as to keep every channel of service open between Hesper and her. To Hesper, the change from the vulgar service of Folter to the ministration of Mary was like passing from a shallow purgatory to a gentle paradise. Mary's service was full of live and near presence, as that of dew or summer wind. Folter handled her as if she were dressing a doll, Mary as if she were dressing a baby. Her hands were deft as an angel's, her feet as noiseless as swift. And to have Mary near was not only to have a ministering spirit at hand, but to have a good atmosphere all around. An air, a heaven, out of which good things must momently come, Few could be closely associated with her, and not become aware, at least, of the capacity of being better, if not the desire to be better. In the matter of immediate result, it was a transition from decoration to dress. If in any sense Hesper was well-dressed before, she was in every sense well-dressed now. Dressed so, that is, as to reveal the nature, the analogies, and the associations of her beauty. No manner of dressing can make a woman look more beautiful than she is, though many a mode may make her look less so. There was one in the house, however, who was not pleased at the change from Folter to Mary. Sepia found herself in consequence less necessary to Hesper. Hitherto Hesper had never been satisfied without Sepia's opinion and final approval in that weightiest of affairs, the matter of dress but she found in Mary such a faculty as rendered appeal to Sepia unnecessary, for she not only satisfied her idea of herself, and how she would choose to look, but showed her taste as much surer than Sepia's, as Sepia's was readier than Hesper's own. Sepia was equal to the dressing of herself, she never blundered there, but there was little dependence to be placed upon her in dressing another. She cared for herself, not for another, and to dress another, Love is needful. Love, the only true artist. Love, the only opener of eyes. She cared nothing to minister to the comfort or beautification of her cousin, and her displeasure did not arise from the jealousy that is born of affection. So far as Hesper's self was concerned, Sepia did not care a straw whether she was well or ill-dressed, but, if the link between them of dress was severed, what other so strong would be left? and to find herself in any way a less object in Hesper's eyes, would be to find herself on the inclined plane of loss and probable ruin. 
Another, though smaller, point was that, hitherto, she had generally been able to so dress Hesper as to make of her more or less a foil to herself. My reader may remember that there was between Hesper and Sepia, if not a resemblance, yet a relation of appearance, like, vaguely, that between the twilight and the night. Seen in certain positions and circumstances, the one would recall the other, and it was therefore a matter of no small consequence to Sepia that the relation of her dress to Hesper's should be such as to give herself any advantage to be derived in it from the relation of their looks. This was far more difficult, of course, when she had no longer a voice in the matter of Hesper's dress, and when the loving skill of the new maid presented her rival to her individual best. Mary would have been glad to help her as well, but Sepia drew back as from a hostile nature, and they made no approximation. This was more lost to Sepia than she knew, for Mary would have assisted her in doing the best when she had no money, a condition which often made it the more trying that she had now so little influence over her cousin's adornment. To dress was a far more difficult, though not more important, affair with Sepia than with Hesper, for she had nothing of her own, and from her cousin no fixed allowance. Any arrangement of the kind had been impossible at Durnmelling, where there was no money, and here, where it would have been easy enough, she judged it better to give no hint in its direction, although plainly it had never suggested itself to Hesper. There was nothing of the money mean in her, any more than in her husband. They were, of course, as became people of fashion, regular and unwearied attendants of the Church of Mammon, ordering all their judgments and ways in accordance with the precepts there delivered. But they were none of Mammon's priests, or pew-openers, money-grubbers, or accumulators. They gave liberally where they gave, and scraped no inferior to spend either on themselves or their charities. They had plenty, it is true, but so have many who withhold more than is meet, and take the ewe-lamb to add to their flock. For one thing, they had no time for that sort of wickedness, and no interest in it. So Hesper, although it had not come to her mind to give her the ease of a stated allowance, behaved generously to Sepia, when she thought of it. But she did not love her enough to be love-watchful, and seldom thought how her money must be going or questioned whether she might not at the moment be in want of more. There are many who will give freely, who do not care to understand need and anticipate want. Hence, at times Sepia's purse would be long empty before the giving thought would wake in the mind of Hesper. When it woke, it was gracious and free. Had Sepia ventured to run up bills with the tradespeople, Hesper would have taken it as a thing of course, and settled them with her own, but Sepia had a certain politic pride in spending only what was given her. Also she saw, or thought she saw, serious reason for avoiding all appearances of taking liberties. From the first of Mr. Redmain's visits to Durmelling, she had been aware, with an instinct keen in respect of its objects, though blind as to its own nature, that he did not like her, and soon satisfied herself that any overt attempt to please him would but ripen his dislike to repugnance, and her dread was that he might make it a condition with Mr. Mortimer that Hesper's intimacy with her should cease, whereas, if once they were married, the husband's disfavor would, she believed, only strengthen the wife's predilection. Having so far gained her end, it remained, however, almost as desirable as before that she should do nothing to fix or increase his dislike, 
nay, that if within the possible, she should become pleasing to him. Did not even hate sometimes turn to its mighty opposite? But she understood so little of the man with whom she had to deal that her calculations were ill-founded. She was right in believing that Mr. Redmain disliked her, but she was wrong in imagining that he had therefore any objection to her being for the present in the house. He certainly did not relish the idea of her continuing to be his wife's inseparable companion, but there would be time enough to get rid of her after he had found her out. For she had not been long one of his family, before he knew, with insight unerring, that she had to be found out, and was therefore an interesting subject for the exercise of his faculty of moral analysis. He was certain her history was composed mainly of secrets. As yet, however, he had discovered nothing. I must just remind my reader of the intellectual passion I have already mentioned in characterizing Mr. Redmain's mental constitution. His faults and vices were by no means peculiar, but the bent to which I refer, certainly no virtue, and springing originally from predominant evil, was in no small degree peculiar, especially in the degree to which, derived as it was from his father, he had in his own being developed it. Most men, he judged with himself, were such fools as well as rogues, that there was not the least occasion to ask what they were after. They did but turn themselves inside out before you. But, on the other hand, there were not a few who took pains, more or less successful, to conceal their game of life, and such it was the delight of his being to lay bare to his own eyes, not to those of other people. That, he said, would be to spoil his game. Men were his library, he said his history, his novels, his sermons, his philosophy, his poetry, his whole literature, and he did not like to have his books thumbed by other people. Human nature, in its countless aspects, was all about him, he said, every mask crying to him to take it off. Unhappily, it was but the morbid anatomy of human nature he cared to study. For all his abuse of it, he did not yet recognize it as morbid, but took it as normal, and the best to be had. No doubt he therein judged and condemned himself. But that he never thought of, nor perceived, would it not have been a point of any consequence to him. From the first he saw through Mr. Mortimer, and all belonging to him, except Miss Yolland, she soon began to puzzle, and, so far, to please him, though, as I have said, he did not like her. Had he been a younger man, she would have captivated him. As it was, she would have repelled him entirely, but that she offered him a good subject. He said to himself that she was a bad lot, but what sort of a bad lot was not so clear as to make her devoid of interest to him. He must discover how she played her life game. She had a history, and he would fain know it. As I have said, however, so far it had come to nothing, for, upon the surface, Sepia showed herself merely like any other worldly girl who knows on which side her bread is buttered. The moment he had found, or believed he had found, what there was to know about her, he was sure to hate her heartily. For some time after his marriage, he appeared at his wife's parties oftener than he otherwise would have done, just for the sake of having an eye upon Sepia, but had seen nothing, nor the shadow of anything, until one night, by the merest chance, happening to enter his wife's drawing-room, he caught a peculiar glance between Sepia and a young man, not very young, who had just entered, 
and whom he had not seen before. To not a few it seemed strange that, with her unquestioned powers of fascination, she had not yet married. But London is not the only place in which poverty is as repellent as beauty is attractive. At the same time it must be confessed that there was something about her which made not a few men shy of her. Some found that, if her eyes drew them within a certain distance, there they began to repel them, they could not tell why. Others felt strangely uncomfortable in her presence from the first. Not only much that a person has done, but much of what a person is capable of is, I suspect, written on the bodily presence, and although no human eye is capable of reading more than here and there a scattered hint of the twilight of history, which is the aura of prophecy, the soul may yet shudder with instinctive foreboding it cannot explain, and feel the presence, without recognizing the nature, of the hostile. Sepia's eyes were her great power. She knew the laws of mortar practice in that kind as well as any officer of engineers those of projectiles. There was something about her engines which it were vain to attempt to describe. Their lightest glance was a thing not to be trifled with, and their gaze a thing hardly to be withstood. Sustained and without hurt defied, it could hardly be by man of woman born. They were large, but no fool would be taken with mere size. They were dark as ever eyes of woman, but our older poets delighted in eyes as grey as glass, certainly not in their darkness lay their peculiar witchery. They were grandly proportioned, neither almond-shaped nor round, neither prominent nor deep-set, but even shape by itself is not much. If I go on to say they were luminous, plainly there the danger begins. Sepia's eyes, I confess, were not the lords of the deepest light for she was not true. But neither was theirs a surface light, generated of mere physical causes. Through them, concentrating her will upon their utterance, she could establish a physical contact with almost any man she chose. The power was an evil, selfish shadow of original, universal love. By them she could produce at once, in the man on whom she turned their play, a sense as it were of some primordial, fatal affinity between her and him, of an aboriginal understanding, the rare possession of but a few of the pairs made male and female. In those eyes she would call up her soul, and there make it sit, flashing light, in gleams and sparkles, shoots and coruscations, not from great black pupils alone, to whose size there were who said the suicidal belladonna lent its aid, but from great dark irids as well, nay, from eyeballs, eyelashes, and eyelids, as from spiritual catapult to culverin would she dart the lightnings of her present soul, invading with influences irresistible as subtle the soul of the man she chose to assail, who, thenceforward, for a season, if he were such as she took him for, scarce had choice but to be her slave. She seldom exerted their full force, however, without some further motive than mere desire to captivate, there are women who fly their falcons at any game, little birds and all. But Sepia did not so waste herself. A quarry must be worth her hunt. She must either love him or need him. Love, did I say? Alas, if ever holy word was put to unholy use, love is that word. When Diana goes to hell, her name changes to Hecate, but love among the devils is called love still. In more than one country, 
whatever might be the cause, Sepia found the men less shy of her than here, and she had almost begun to think her style was not generally pleasing to English eyes. Whether this had anything to do with the fact that now in London she began to amuse herself with Tom Helmer, I cannot say with certainty. But almost, if not quite the first time they met, that morning, namely, when first he called, and they sat in the bay window of the drawing-room in Glamis Square, she brought her eyes to play upon him, and although he addressed the firefly poem to Hesper in the hope of pleasing her, it was for the sake of Sepia chiefly that he desired the door of her house to be an open one to him. Whether at that time she knew he was a married man, it is hardly necessary to inquire, seeing it would have made no difference whatever to one like her, whose design was only to amuse herself with the youth, and possibly to make of him a screen. She went so far, however, as to allow him, when there was opportunity, to draw her into quiet corners, and even to linger when the other guests were gone, and he had his full share of champagne. Once, indeed, they remained together so long in the little conservatory, lighted only by an alabaster lamp, pale as the moon in the dawning, that she had to unbolt the door to let him out. This did not take place without coming to the knowledge of both Mr. and Mrs. Redmain, but the former was only afraid there was nothing in it, and was far from any wish to control her, and Sepia herself was the informant of the latter. To her she would make game of her foolish admirer, telling how, on this and that occasion, it was all she could do to get rid of him. End of chapter 31 Sepia